You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everybody. This is Jackie Lewis, and this is a special mini-series of Love Period, in which we're focusing on Black History Month. Of course, you and I know that Black history is American history, but my guests are going to bring special perspectives about what it means to be Black in America in these days. And I hope you enjoy these conversations. I am so delighted to welcome Drew Jackson to Love Period today. Hey, Drew. Hey, Jackie. So glad to be here with you. How you doing? I'm doing well today. Today, today's been good. Today? Today has been good. It's been a slow morning, so I appreciate yeah. that. You had a little bit of uh, some trauma with the church on the weekend, huh? Yeah, well, it was actually, I had gotten a call MLK Day that morning that the fire department had to come into our building and shut off the sprinklers because there was a burst pipe that had set off the sprinkler oh, wow. system. There was water all in the sanctuary, water all in the basement. So I've been dealing with that for the past couple of weeks. Finally, things are things are in a good spot, but it was a mess. That burst pipe water thing is not a happy experience. That is a fact. That is a fact. What did, what did you do for MLK Day? What did you guys do? How did you mark the day? Besides that, <laughs> well, my I was I was just home with my daughters. That was that was yeah. so uh, yeah. I have uh, seven year olds. They're twins, and uh, <gasps> we talked a little. Uh, history and just got to spend some time together, and that was my day. That's a beautiful way to do the day. So you have seven-year-old twins. What are you teaching seven-year-old girls Mm. about Black history? Mm. Well, it's important for us to think in the face of everything that's going on right now, to have them have a sense of rootedness, a sense Mm. of belonging, understanding that they belong to a a long lineage of people who have continued to learn how to show up fully as themselves. Mm. You know, when so much has tried to dampen our voices as a people, I think it's been important for us to, to really try to teach them as young Black girls in whatever space they're in to show up fully as themselves. And they're seven years old, but they read all the time. They read all the time. So, and they get they get that from us. I mean, my wife, I, I mentioned she works at the bookstore. Um, yeah. She's constantly bringing home books. And they love to read those uh, the sort of like little leader books that, that yeah. highlight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we, we, we have them read those and we talk. And we talk. They ask oh, questions. Good. They ask questions about, um, about people, you know. They're asking questions about, you know, tell me, tell me who is Ella Fitzgerald. Let's talk about Ella. Yeah. You know, let, let's talk about Billie Holiday. You know, wow. let's talk about um, Ida B. Wells. So, so I just, just yeah. letting them know uh, what their lineage is and what, what they have to receive from and carry forward. I'm so impressed with that, Drew. So you, your wife, the two girls, the twins, live in New York and you are raising leaders to continue to show up, to learn to show up fully as themselves. Part of the lineage that you and I share is the lineage of, a, of, of Black people, period. Mm-hmm. But what about your particular story, Drew? What's your family story? Can you tell a little bit about that? So I, I grew up in South Jersey, just across the bridge from Philly. My uh, Which town? Uh, in a town called Williamstown. Okay. 
So I'm the youngest of four boys. Okay. My mom, she's from Philly. She grew up in the Richard Allen Projects in North Philly. Oh, okay. okay. My dad was born in Harlem. Their family moved to South Jersey when he was about seven or eight, but continued to, to come up and spend time here in the city because we still have family here. You know, interestingly enough, like my parents, we came up in the church, but uh, the church that my brothers and I came up in was a particularly fundamentalist brand of independent Baptists. You know, we kind of came up in that sphere, but it was always it was always in a sense of like my parents never fully bought in, even though they were there. <laughs> you okay. know, they, were they were they inside resistors? They were. They were. They were. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would. You know, I could tell a lot of stories about about it, but um, I think what I learned from them growing up was just they would take it upon themselves to teach us the things that we weren't being taught elsewhere. You know, whether it be whether it be in church or in school, that was just that was just who they were. Um, and I think they they got that from from their parents. You know, um, my grandfather on my dad's side grew up in Anderson, South Carolina, but my dad used to tell me that. He he would not talk about what he saw and witnessed growing up. Hmm. He wouldn't talk about it. He would get angry anytime there was news of racial violence that came across the radio or the, t- or the television. And yet there was this sort of imparting of the, you know, we have to acknowledge it, we have to stand against it. But there's something in my grandfather that just, it was, it was trauma that he could not, he did not know how to process. Um, and so I think what I learned from my, like my dad was more of a, how do we begin to process the trauma? You know, mm-hmm. how do we begin mm-hmm. to engage it? And I, interestingly enough, I went to, I guess a couple of months ago at this point, I went down to the uh, Equal Justice Initiative Memorial. Oh yeah. And I have been wanting to get down there Part of the reason is because I wanted to go and see, you know, what happened in Anderson. If there is some some yes. history in Anderson that I need to know about. Right. So when I went, I ended up finding on the memorial for Anderson County, there was a, a name, a man named Will Jackson, who had been lynched. Is he related to you? Well, I don't know for sure, but I know that he was lynched right around the time that my grandfather would have been there. Mm. Anderson's not a very big place. It, it was, certainly wasn't at the time. And so I looked up his story and there were, you know, newspaper clippings from that time. And it was one of those lynchings where the whole town came out. You know, he was accused of raping a white woman, was chased and they, they lynched him. And it says in the newspaper clippings that that his mother and his family, they were so embarrassed by what happened that they sort of wouldn't even come to bury him. My interpretation of that is that they were so intimidated that the fear of what was happening during that time and, you know, that there was a basically they were intimidated out of even offering dignity to their boy. Oh, yeah. Oh, and so. I know that my grandfather eventually left the town and never looked back. So I don't know if that's my relative, but it's highly likely. I've been to that museum. And in fact, listeners, if you do anything about making a sojourn in this country, 
go there to the museum and both parts of it, right, mm-hmm. Drew? Both the, parts of it. The testimony to the lynchings, mm-hmm. these, I'm going to say they look like funeral pyres. Yeah. They, they're just big, you know, markers of human death. And this last time, my husband and I went on a sabbatical this summer, Drew, and we did a South tour. We did, we went around and did some research on black folks' religion mm-hmm. and white folks' craziness. I'm just going to call it that. <laughs> but this time, reading the stories the short stories of why Jackson was lynched yeah. or Johnson was lynched or the correlation between anything sexual about mm-hmm. a white lady mm-hmm. tipped his hat, gave her his business card, knocked on the door, right? Was seen talking to. I, I could not, not Emmett Till flirt, mm-hmm. not, not, Rape, just an encounter with the white woman was enough. Mm -hmm. Wow, right? Just an encounter. Just an encounter. Mm. Yeah, it's the the refusal to allow blackness into your space. Yes, yes, yes. And the presumption that the blackness in the space is violent Mm -hmm. or loathsome or predatory, or oversexual, or any of that, is is the one of the fault lines on American life. Did you take your girls? Did you take your girls and your wife? Did you go by yourself? No, I I went. I was part of a cohort of some pastors from around the country that had went, and it was a it was a South American South trip. That we ended in Montgomery. Oh, wow. Yeah. We started in New Orleans, went to then Jackson, Mississippi, from Jackson to Selma, from Selma to Montgomery. It's an interesting journey to take. And when you think about raising daughters, Drew, in the North, what what are the lessons you want them to have about Black folks' lives in the South? When I was... On this trip, one of the people that we got to spend some time with was um, Medgar Evers' daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Rena Evers. Yep. And just spending time with her, telling her own story, talk about the time she had with her father and the night that he was killed by Klansmen mm-hmm. for speaking up, yeah, for, yeah. for challenging the status quo, for advocating for voting rights, for being a threat. You know, for being seen as a threat, and I think when I when I think about even that and her, but the thing that you know, she said, she was telling us the story of just how her memory of her dad was coming coming into her room at night, tucking her into bed, and her asking her dad the question, "Dad, do all white people hate us?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, being a seven year old girl, and so it took me right into these moments with my daughters and. Her dad took that moment to speak reality, but not to tear down folks, but to sort of forge a path for her of saying, it is our job to keep loving, to keep being a force for good in the world, essentially. Yeah. And in the face of all that is. And she's like, that's the thing that I remember most that she carries with her, that she continues to tell that story. And so when I think about my daughters and all that is still happening today, but also just the history. It's the question of, you know, how are we being honest with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
about what is, yes. but also what's the invitation to what does it mean to be formed as people who know how to love in this world mm. in the face of everything that is deforming us in the opposite direction, you know? Oh, yes. Did you go to that museum in Jackson? I did. Oh, my God. Of all of the museums, including yeah. the one in D.C., including that to yeah. me is the best yeah. curation of this story yeah. that is our story. What do you think? Isn't wasn't it powerful? It, it was really powerful. And are you talking about the the two Mississippi's museum? Oh yes. Now did you did you go to both sides? Oh yeah. yes. Because <laughs> one one of the things we talked about was the choice that they made as a museum to have a two Mississippi to two narrative sort of thing. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. I, I love. I, I think that the choice to do that in one sense is really powerful. Because it right. gives enough space for the history of civil rights in Mississippi to be told on its own. Yeah. But there's also sort of the option to not go to the other side. That's right. You almost feel like you got to force Yeah. You must go through this one to get to yeah. that one. And, and so yeah. there are some people that come in and they go into the sort of the reg the quote unquote regular Mississippi history regular side. Regular museum. <laughs> and, but they don't ever go to the other side. That's and right. I feel like that is... In a sense, it's such a picture of what even we're seeing today with how we tell our history. This poem is called The Waters of My Weeping and is written in reflection on Luke chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus finds out that his cousin John has been arrested. One of my brothers, my cousins, added to the number of your incarcerated masses. One in three of us. Unarmed? Yes. A threat? Yes. To your abuse of power and the way you sit so comfortably in your palace while we struggle to eat out in these streets. But in this hour, I weep. Again, for this innocent man baptized into your carceral system, immersed into this jail with no bail, I am forced to witness this unholy sacrament, this state-sponsored religious act. And for what? Something about his person disturbed you. Maybe by passing him through these waters, you will convert him to the faith of unsacred silence, one way or another. I'm sorry that it frightens you when we fight for our humanity, but tonight I cry. These tears have become my food. I dip myself in the pool of the waters of my weeping for my brother, for my cousin, for all of us, until they stop locking us. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience. 
an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. So, grandfather from yeah. North Carolina. Anderson, South Carolina. Anderson, South Carolina. Yeah. Family, New York, Philly. Yeah. What about the other side of the family? Southern roots? Or? Well, don't we all in some sense? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, so my mom's side of the family. I know that I have a bunch of family in Philly. I don't know the full extent. I know that I have some family down in Maryland. Beyond that, I don't know where everybody's at. But one of the stories mm-hmm. that, so we had a family reunion several years ago and my aunt, she she did a lot of the sort of family family tree work, trying to yes. get all the stuff together as much as she could. And one of the stories that she told that stuck with me was about how she found just some information about our family pre-emancipation mm. and how the family, all of the children, right, were they had very sort of European names for, you know, until the first child that was born post-emancipation. Okay. And they named him Senegal. And they named him Senegal right as a as a as a marker to the family of where we were from mm-hmm. so that we wouldn't forget yes. so that we wouldn't know i love it so I, I love that that's part of my my history and my family and that we need to understand who we are you know yeah. do your girls names you don't have to name them here if you don't want to some of us keep our kids private private but do their names have meaning in your family story or in the story of america or? yeah so zora i have a daughter named zora so she's named after Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah. My other daughter is named Sahila. Sahila has Swahili roots. It has both Swahili and Arabic roots. And it, it means gentle, easy-spirited, but also mm-hmm. star. Okay. Which really, if you know her, it's, it's, it's fitting. It fits. Yeah, it fits. <laughs> yeah. It fits. And, and Zora's name is actually, it, it means dawn. And so there's this sort of, Dawn. yeah. Okay. Um, I think both of them in their own ways really kind of are living into their names. Yeah. yeah I love that. I love to think about origins of names. Jacqueline mm. comes from Jack, mm. Jock, Jacob, which means heel grabber. Hello. <laughs> Did I grab anybody's heels? No. <laughs> but I'm yeah. named after Jackie Kennedy. Mm. Um, but I, I do think about the naming of our children yeah. as prescriptive yeah. or something, yeah. right? We have a little grandbaby named Octavius, mm. who's named after Octavius Cato, um, you know, freedom fighter in Philadelphia. I wanted to make that connection there. Uh, his dad and mom named him that, so he'd know he was supposed to fight for, fight for love, fight for mm-hmm. freedom. Big sister Ophelia, named for a song that they love. But I think about our little people, Drew. I think about your daughters that are seven, mm-hmm. my niece and nephew that are littler, 10 and 13, and another pair are 29 and 31. I think about two-year-old Octavius, four-year-old Ophelia, and our black present. And I'm so in awe of how far we've come. I cannot believe 
how much black excellence, black joy, black resistance, black science, mm-hmm. you know, black um, mystics, you mm-hmm. know, black teachers, preachers, writers, poets, poets, Drew Jackson, <laughs> black goodness, mm-hmm. parenting that has happened over these centuries here in this nation. And at the same time, I'm frightened at about how intractable whiteness is. I love Wajahat Ali has a new book out and he calls it The Whiteness, you know, but like whiteness, friends, in quotes, like white supremacy, white nationalism, you know, white people, not ethnic, Polish, German, British, but just the construct of whiteness created opposite blackness to perpetrate a fraud of inequality. I'm stunned at the lengths to which our our electeds, our public officials, our pundits, the media are going like they're in death throes to continue to stay, right? It makes my head hurt. (laughs) I'm tired today. You know, you and I started like, I look tired. I am so tired of the morass. Mm -hmm. Talk talk about that. What are your feelings about that? I mean, the idea of whiteness as a power. Willie Jennings often talks about whiteness as this power that is always moving toward ownership of, power over, dominion over, in any space that it's in, it owns, or it, it believes it owns. And when that is being challenged, which I think we're we're seeing that we're we're seeing the challenge of that. Yeah, I think that what you described as the death throes is what you get the the sort of I'm going to hold on to what I believe is life. Yes, yeah, which is my ownership of this space, my voice being the preeminent voice in this space, mm-hmm. my ideas mm-hmm. and ideologies, my heroes, all of that being first and, and center. So yeah, I mean, what that's I think what we're experiencing is the push against that, mm-hmm. and the challenge, and the 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 trying to hold on to dear life, right? You know, yep. Instead of letting, instead of instead of letting go, right? If you and there's this this someone said, if you save your life, you'll lose it, right? If you if you, wow. <laughs> right? Somebody, Somebody said, said it. <laughs> <laughs> to think about you, Drew, as a younger African-American man. You know, where's your hope? Mm. And what's love mm. you know, got to do with it? Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a poet. <laughs> I know. And so <laughs> I, the first thing, one of the first things that comes to my mind when I think of that word, what, word hope is, what did Emily Dickinson say? Hope is the thing with feathers. Right. It's this sense of it's always it's always there, but it's 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 sort of flying away. And there's this thing, there's this move to sort of grasp it um, in a sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there are days where it's like, where's my hope? I don't know. It's gone off somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, that's you know, but then there are days where the hope lands on my shoulder like a, you know, and it's it's, 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 it's close and it's singing. It's singing. Oh, it's close and singing. Yeah. And so the invitation is to listen and to sing along with it. Um, so for me, when I think about that, I think about, I do think about my daughters. 
And I think mm-hmm. about the ways that they, even at seven years old, have this thing within them mm-hmm. that understands what justice is, mm-hmm. that understands they have this light within them. And, you know, one of the things that my, my, uh, one of my daughter's teachers said to them or said to us in one of their parent-teacher conferences, she said, you know, your, your daughter is the most salt-of-the-earth person I've ever met. Salt-of-the-earth person. What? You know? And, but but, but, I, but I, I was like, wow, what can I learn from her about what that means, about what it means to be a salt-of-the-earth sort of person? Wow. I watched a lot. I watched them a lot. I observed them a lot during lockdown, during quarantine. And this, I mean, it was a disruption for all of us, right? Right. They, I mean, they were taken out of what, what had become a normal rhythm for them, you know, being in school mm-hmm. and having to flip to this online, like all of these different things. And as I'm watching them, I just see, I see in them this ability to create, create beauty and joy in the midst of and now they they didn't fully have a a concept of like what's all what all is happening but they knew something's not right but Mm -hmm. in this something's Mm -hmm. not right there's this ability to create out of that and to give it away Mm -hmm. to invite Mm -hmm. to constantly being inviting me into that and mom into Mm -hmm. that and knowing that things are heavy but there's a hey would you you know we we just we just made up this game in our room. Come play with us, oh, you know. Wow. And and to me, that is it, it's the hope is always creating this beauty and joy and an invitation to come and sit with it in the midst of mm. everything else that's going on, not dismissing everything else, but saying, how do I take what's 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 here and create beauty out of it. I think that is, it's it's the spirit hovering over the chaos sort of hope mm-hmm. that creates out oh, of beautiful. that. Beautiful. Yeah. And so creating not out of, like, we, you know, there was a void, but actually there's, there's not, not a, a void. void. There was confusion. There's, there was yes. chaos. There was all kinds of stuff. Yes. But out of that creation. Yes. Ooh, Drew. Yes. You are a poet. I'm going to read something to you and ask you to tell me about it. Are you ready? I did not awaken mm. in memory of Amir Locke. Mm-hmm. I did not awaken at 6.48 a.m. to the sound of screaming police who had no warrant for me, yet somehow had a key to my apartment. I did not awaken at 6.48 a.m. rubbing the crust out of my eyes to find myself surrounded by officers tricked out in tactical gear. I did not awaken at 6.48 a.m. having to reach to protect myself against the ones who had come to protect and serve. I did not awaken at 6.48 a.m. throwing off the blanket, keeping me warm, to be met by bullets piercing my flesh, covered in blood, body now cold. I did not awaken. That's you, Drew Jackson, y'all. A poem in honor of Amir Lot. From whence did that come, Drew? What was happening for me was just imagining Amir waking up 
and being really being stirred awake mm-hmm. by the sound of a door being burst open, mm-hmm. screaming officers, all of this happening within the span of just a few seconds Wait. before before he's shot. And so as I'm sitting there on the edge of my bed, I I just couldn't, I, I, I'm trying to, in that moment, sit with Amir as best as I know how. <laughs> and both give voice to so much of my own pain at this reality that it seems to just keep happening over and over and over again. And thinking about stories of of instances of my own life where I could have been Amir or Tamir, you know, or Trayvon or the list goes Mm -hmm. on. And it wasn't for me, it was like, okay, I'm just going to write this because I don't know what else to do. Yeah. I just don't know what else to do. I'm grateful for your voice. Um, for your voice in your church, for your voice as a poet, as a dad, as a husband, mm-hmm. as a son, at the CAC. Are you still connected? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Prayers for Richard always. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, Drew, about black future. Yes. So I'm, I'm not like Afrofuturist girl yeah, yeah. necessarily, but I am thinking about black future. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Zora and Sahila and Rio and RJ and Octavius and Ophelia are listening to this someday, Drew. And Drew, the poet, had just a few words to say mm-hmm. to our people, to our little people, mm-hmm. Drew, about a black future. Mm-hmm. What might you say? I would read poem. Good. <laughs> it's a poem called The Power of Parable. Mm. And I wrote it just thinking about just that, the ways that parable and story have always functioned um, among our people. Mm-hmm. And um, the poem has an epigraph from Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower. And it says, the destiny of earth seed is to take root among the stars. Ooh, yes. Down through the ages... We've passed down wisdom through story. This is what the scholars call oral tradition. We simply call it living. Because there is no life without the elders gifting us their parabolic insight. Subversive, like Octavia's earth seed. They unearth the power of our humanity that has been covered by years of subjugation, reminding us of our connection to the divine. They tell us of things certain folks fear, things those on top do not want us to hear. So give ear when these stories are uttered. It is here that we must do battle, rattling the cages of evil with the power of parable. Rattling the cages of evil with the power of parable. Yeah, beautiful, Mm -hmm. true. What's that book? Yes, yes, this is God Speaks Through Wombs. God Speaks Through Wombs, Drew Jackson. Drew, what do you know for sure about love? That love is always expanding. It is, it is always pressing up against the, the boundaries that we have set. 
pushing us further, wider. When we think love can only go this far, far, love says, no, let me take you out a little bit further. It's, it's the invitation that says, come and see. Come and see with me. That is what I know for sure about love. Fierce mm-hmm. love. What comes up for you? It's the image of resurrection that comes up for me. It's the refusal for love to, to stay buried underneath the ground. It bursts mm-hmm. through announcing that a new day is here. Lovely. Absolutely beautiful. Drew, we have come over a way that with tears mm-hmm. has been watered. And I'm really glad for this conversation with you today as we think about Black history and Black present and Black future. Many blessings to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Love Period, a special series we put together for Black History Month. As an African-American woman who grew up in this nation, I think about the poet James Weldon Johnson, who says about my people, We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. I think about the tears of my ancestors watering the soil of America, tears baptizing my hope, tears that are often tears of joy because we've learned how to make a way out of no way. Black history, black heritage, it's everyone's history. These stories belong to all of us. And I hope because you've listened to these episodes, you feel connected and that you'll dig and do some research about Black folks in America.